All right, well, let's move on over to 2 Timothy chapter 1. We're just going to get down to verse 6. You'll notice as we go from a narrative like Genesis, where we can cover a couple of chapters, maybe two or three at a time, and just pick out in the narrative the key things that you look for are people and places and events. Um, when you get it to an epistle, a letter that we're going to read like uh, first or Second Timothy, um, the shift goes from people and places and kind of big events and, and, and uh, changes in scenery to very words. The words are what we're paying attention to. And so you, you don't go through an epistle at the same pace you would go through a narrative. Um, otherwise, you kind of miss it. Whereas sometimes if you go too slow through a narrative, you can miss it. You get so into the details, you can't even see the big picture. So verses 1 through 6 is what we're going to uh, tackle today. This is uh, Paul's last letter. And he's writing to Timothy to reignite that fire in his heart and in his life. He's writing from prison. He knows that his life is going to be taken. And there's that imminency of his departure that we will find as we read. He says, I know that you know, it's, it's time for me to go. And I'm ready to meet with the Lord. And this, that's very different than the way in which he wrote when he was in his other Roman imprisonment. And he wrote the book of Philippians where he says, listen, I don't know if I'm going to stay or I'm going to go. I think I'm going to stay, which is more helpful for you. For me, I'd rather go and be with the Lord. And so he was, we believe, released at that time. And now this is the second imprisonment. And it's at the end of his life. And Nero's a different man. And he's going to have uh, his life taken at his hands. So Paul's uh, going to greet uh, the church in verses 1 and 2, 3 and 5. He's going to talk about the deep connection he has with Timothy. And verse 6 is where we're really going to slow it down and take some time. But I do want to, uh, here at the beginning, talk about the, the relationship and a little bit of the history of Paul and Timothy's meeting. So we will do that as we go. Let's look at verse 1 and 2. Well, actually, actually, let's read the verse sixes. first six verses. It's short enough. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, a beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I've served with a pure conscience as my forefathers did, as without ceasing I remember you in my prayers night and day greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy. When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is, also, is in you also. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hand. So we begin at a greeting. This greeting, verses 1 and 2, so typical. If you were to pick up a, just a, a regular correspondence outside of the Bible from this time period, this is exactly how they would introduce themselves. This is the way they would begin a letter. There's all kinds of examples of this. So Paul's just writing in a mode and a, a form that was familiar to them. What's so different is the content, which is the inspired word of God. And so he says that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Apostle means sent ones. And so think of a missionary sent out. The first century had apostles that served in a unique role and the, to them was given the revelation of uh, Scripture and they wrote Scripture down as well. We don't have that kind of an apostle today. But we still have those that are being sent out. 
And he says that he is one that is sent out by the will of God. In other words, God's plan, he's fulfilling God's plan for his life. But it's like, wait a minute, Paul, you're in prison again. Are you sure you're in the will of God? I mean, you're sick. Are you sure you're in the will of God? Your friends, they deny the Lord and they deny you. Are you sure you're in the will of God? Because it seems like a lot of hard things happen to you. Well, as the psalmist says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them from them all. And he experienced many difficult things. And we shouldn't consider it a strange thing when we face a fiery trial, right? And all who would seek to live godly will suffer persecution. When we begin to measure our good standing with the Lord based on whether or not everything is going good in the physical, man, we can really be misled and we can end up being even condemned. And Paul could have said, well, wait a minute. If I was doing the right thing, then I don't think you'd put me in jail. Why would he want me in jail? I'm more effective if I'm out there going from town to town and preaching the gospel and calling people to salvation and healing people and performing miracles. That's where I need to be. But how many of you are glad that Paul was thrown in prison? Anybody glad? Yeah, all of our hands should go up. You know why? Because he wrote a lot of of the, the books of the Bible from prison. Imagine that. In a place of confinement and being constricted and not having the freedom to go, God ended up using that ministry in a powerful way. And here we sit today reading one of the letters of the many that he wrote while in jail. And I think that's a good lesson for us. Very similar to the lessons we drew out of uh, our study in Joseph. Is that even when everything's going wrong and everything's pressing down upon us and the unexpected takes place, don't think that God is not at work. You still be in the will of God in the midst of all those challenges, in the midst of all of those difficulties, God was at work. And he says that he was an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And then this next phrase, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus according to the promise of life. Was he thinking about the promise of life that he had in Jesus Christ? Or was he thinking about the promise of life that he was to proclaim to others? I mean, you can take it either way. And maybe there's elements of both because he certainly was a partaker of the promise of life and he was also a proclaimer. And we are both partakers and proclaimers of the promise of life. We're it. This is it. God's plan is the church of Jesus Christ to proclaim the promise of life. Nobody else has that message to proclaim, and God has chosen nobody else other than the church of Jesus Christ to proclaim it. That's you and me. It's in our hands. And as a matter of fact, even as a generation, we are the generation right now, we have the baton in our hand. It's our lap. We're running the race right now. We can't look back on what they did wrong or right. We can't look forward to what the next generation might be. All we need to be focused upon is, it's my lap to proclaim the promise of life. And the world needs to hear it. Now, not everybody's going to respond. As a matter of fact, Jesus said few would respond. But there are those unique moments that break in the general course of human existence when God pours out his spirit and a revival happens and many people get saved and come and they take that promise of life. Wouldn't you love to see that happen? Wouldn't you love to see not just an individual here or an individual there or a neighbor here or a coworker there, but wouldn't you just love to see the spirit of God throw out a net and just draw many men and women to himself? And, and to, to experience life, 
boy, we know this world is, is angry right now. We know that there is competing opinions and hostility, um, and people are not happy. But the answer is the promise of life. It's what you have experienced. It's what I walk in. And we are to proclaim that message. And we'll talk more about that in our study next week. And he says to, my, uh, to Timothy, a beloved son. So not his physical descendant, but a spiritual uh, young man that he discipled in the Lord and raised him up in ministry. And they had this close relationship. Um, Acts chapter 16 the book of Acts, as you read through the New Testament, it's really important that, that when you come to like a study in Timothy and there's a reference to Timothy, well, where did Timothy come from? Well, the book of Acts is going to be your place to go to. If you're reading about, you know, we finished First uh, and Second Thessalonians uh, not long before we, we made our way here. Well, the book of Acts is going to tell you how that church got started. So it gives you a background for so much information of the, that you read in the epistles. And so in Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 3, we read about Timothy and Paul's first meeting and the serious request that he asks of him. We read, Then he came to Derb and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple. So Paul's the one that's coming. A certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman. Now we know her name, right? Her name is Eunice, and we know her grandmother. Uh, his grandmother was, was Lois. But his father was Greek, or he was a Gentile. He was well spoken of by the brethren. Okay, so the church who were at Lystra and Iconium, they had good things to say about this young man. Verse 3, Paul wanted to have him go on with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. So this is where they met, and he meets this young guy, at the church that's gathered there. And Paul's thinking, this guy could be really helpful to me in my missionary efforts. Would you like to come? I would love to come. Great. I want to circumcise you. Excuse me? Excuse me? I, are, haven't you gone around saying that we don't need to be circumcised? Isn't this kind of the whole point that we're going to get from the Jerusalem Council? Is that Jew, uh, Gentiles don't have to be circumcised? And he's like, yeah, you don't have to be circumcised. That's not a requirement for faith, but you have a Jewish mother. And we want to go and minister to a lot of the Jews. And when they hear that you are a Jew that has not been circumcised, they're not going to hear anything else after that. They're not going to hear what you have to say. And I don't want to limit the voice that you have to declare the gospel, the promise of, of life. So we need to get you circumcised so we can remove that stumbling block and the gospel can go forth in freedom. Not required, not necessary, but you know Paul's heart. He goes, I will do all things to win people to Christ. I'll become all things to all men that I might perhaps win some. He's not going to sin. He's not going to compromise. He's not saying, Timothy, you've got to do this to get saved. He's saying, Timothy, if we want to have an opportunity to preach the gospel to just even these Jews in this region... You're going to need to get circumcised. And he went, goes ahead and he gets circumcised. There's a principle here that says that we should be willing to forfeit certain things in our life that we are entitled to that we might preach the gospel. Because the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ is more important than my comforts and my priorities and my privileges and my liberties. Kind of got quiet there. Okay. 
The gospel is more important than my liberties and my comforts and my likes and my dislikes. And so I, if I got to do something that's not in my wheelhouse in order to proclaim the gospel, but it does not compromise or I don't walk down a path of leading people astray with that action, then I've got to do it. I'll give you a very simple example, and then I'll give you one that hits a little closer to home. When um, I was a youth pastor in uh, Vista, California, Calvary Chapel Vista, we had gone over and we had a lot of work that we did over in, at that time it was called Yugoslavia, we refer to it as now the nation is known as Serbia. And the communism was falling and we were out there preaching the gospel. And I'm telling you what, I could talk forever about that. Man, we saw people get saved like crazy. People were just flooding to faith. And um, one conversation I remember having with this uh, I don't remember what town we were at, but there was this young lady. She was there, and they, we were outside of a nightclub, and people were coming out, and we were sharing the gospel. And um, I remember saying something like, hey, um, she spoke English. I said, can I just share with you a little bit about, you know, um, Jesus Christ? And, and she goes, well, what are you doing here? She goes, well, I've, I've, I've come over here to share with people about Jesus Christ and how he can give you, you know, a full life, an abundant life, and how you can have your sins forgiven. She goes, well, tell me about that. I got to share with her and watch her put her faith and trust in the Lord. People were getting saved all over, and God was working. And so one of the churches in this town um, that had lived in the shadow of uh, uh, communism and was very silent saw all of these young Americans um, out there sharing the gospel, and they're watching their town get saved. And so one of these churches came to me, and uh, we talked to them, and they, he asked if I would come and teach at their church. And so I did, but I was from Southern California. And it was so summertime in Serbia, and they don't have air conditioning. So my packing list was pretty simple, shorts and T-shirts. I brought a pair of my best jeans and I think even a new T-shirt. And I, I mean, I knew that when I was asked, I'm like, oh, man, I got a jeans and T-shirt. And I, I'm sure they're not going to like it. So I, I went and I put them on and I showed up and he's like, is that all you have to wear? I'm like, this is all I have. Other stuff's at home. He's like, don't worry about it. I've got some clothes. <laughs> this guy was so much bigger than me, which is not hard to do. But um, he was so much bigger. So I got this big old shirt on, and it was massive. And then I tucked it in these pants that were way too big, and I pulled this belt really tight, and all the fabrics bunched up around there. And I've got my tennis shoes, and I'm standing there. Now, one of the young kids that was with me, he goes, this is legalism. You shouldn't do this. There's no reason why you should have to. I go, this is not legalism. This is me wanting to be able to speak to them. And so if I've got to dress up and look like a clown, then I'm going to dress up and I'm going to look like a clown. Because I could, I could, you know, put my foot down and say, listen, what are you talking about? I mean, I, I put jeans on. I usually wear shorts. This is not a problem. You shouldn't have a problem. There's something wrong. But he said, he goes, I don't mind if you do this. He goes, but if you get up there dressed like that, he goes, they won't listen to a word you have to say. And, you know, I knew he was right. And so I gladly put on the clown-looking clothes and stood up there and I preached the message because I wanted the opportunity. Did I have to? No. But that's a small sacrifice compared to Timothy, don't you think? Let me ask you this question. If you knew that you had to put a mask on to share the gospel or to minister to somebody, would you do it? I hope you would. Well, I've got freedoms. Mm, yeah, I know. Let's talk about Timothy, though. He had some freedoms. He had some freedoms. He, he, he didn't have to get circumcised, but he wanted the opportunity to minister. 
And so he became all things to all men. So listen, when it comes to issues, whether it's talking about circumcision or the clothes you wear or a mask you put on your face or whatever the issue may be, if it is not against sound doctrine, then we make the sacrifice for the sake of the message we proclaim. We're proclaiming life to the dead. And so we will do whatever it takes. Well, as this relationship built and Paul got to know Timothy, he later wrote of Timothy in Philippians 2, 19 through 22, but I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. He's going to come to you, he's going to get a report, and he's going to tell me how you're doing. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state, for all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus, but you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. And so you see that Timothy becomes this valuable person. As a matter of fact, how valuable? The most valuable. He's MVP in Paul's list, right? I know of no one like-minded who will sincerely care for you like I would care for you other than Timothy. He's at the top of the list. And so these traveling companions, they, got, they became close in their relationship. They went through many trials and hardships and imprisonments. And many times he was sent on errands and came back and would go again and delivered letters, you know, administrated churches, and they were close. And there is a heartbreak that's going on. Verses 3 through 5 um, as we read about this, this deep friendship, it says, I thank my God whom I serve with a pure conscience, as my forefathers did, as without ceasing I remember you in my prayers night and day. And he says, and I'm mindful of your tears. So Timothy is broken. Why is he broken up? We don't know exactly, but the context would just seem to be this. He knows that his companion and his father in the faith, Paul, is about to be put to death. He's going to be executed. Capital punishment. And this breaks his heart, and he's concerned, and it's bringing him to tears that he's going to go through this. And so what does Paul say? He says, Timothy, I thank God. Not, maybe not the first thing you would expect to hear from somebody who's locked up in jail and is about to be put to death. But he says, Timothy, I thank God. I appreciate your tears, but don't, don't feel bad for me. I thank God, whom I serve with a pure conscience. I have no regret for what I have done. I've served the Lord exactly the way he's told me to, as my forefathers did. And I think it's interesting. He said, I'm in a long line of people that have walked out the faith and have served the Lord. I, I, you know, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Benjamin, the tribe that, that Paul was from. And he says, listen, I, as my forefathers have served, I am walking in this, and I can't believe it. I'm thankful to God that I get to proclaim this. And if I'm going to die, Timothy, don't worry about it. I thank God I'm serving him. I have no regrets for my life. And I'm praying for you, and I desire to see you, and I know that this is hard on you. But you want to know what? I know what... I'm doing is also in you. You have a genuine faith too. And it came from your grandmother and it came from your mom and you're walking this out and I believe and I am persuaded it is in you. So don't be moved back. Don't allow my circumstances to cause you to, get, to shrink back. 
We both are doing what God has called us to do. We both are uniquely and wonderfully a part of this, this Christian faith, this Christian lineage. And of course, Timothy could go back as well to the forefathers of the, of, of the faith as we can. Look what you are connected with. You're not, listen, your connection is not with just a, an address on a particular street. Your connection is with men and women who have followed the Lord and the revelation that has come from them, from God to them, and has been passed on to us. There's this long scarlet thread of redemption and you and I, if you are in the faith, we are connected to it. And hard things may come, and difficult things may come, and people may turn away, and people may abandon the faith, but not us. Because we are those that are connected with Jesus. And I'm not going to abandon, abandon Jesus for anything. What would it take to cause you to abandon Jesus? Would it be imprisonment? Would it be the threat of life? Would it be friends that are going through difficulty? Would it be friends that abandon the faith? And I say to all those things, I'm not going to be moved by that. By the grace of the Lord and the strength that he gives, I'm not giving up on Jesus. I'm not going to look for anything else or anyone else. I, I don't want it to go hard. I don't want it to be bad. Um, I may give you some quotes next week from an early church father by the name of Ignatius. And uh, Ignatius used to say things like, you know what, I hope that I get arrested, and I hope I am sent to Rome. When I'm sent to Rome, I hope they feed me to the lions. And if they throw me into the lions, I'm giving you the quote already, and they throw me into the lions, and the lions prove to be tame and docile, I'll grab them by the beard and th open their mouth and thrust my head in there that I might die. It's like, okay, he might need a little counseling. I don't know. But, <laughs> but, that, but the mentality was, what an honor to serve and suffer for the Lord. And I think that we may be in the place where we're, in some ways, in some ways, we're untested. I mean, I'm untested. I've never had a knife to my throat to say, deny Christ. I've never had a gun. I've never watched my friends. I've never seen people be put to death like brothers and sisters are experiencing all over the world today. I've never experienced it. I'm untested in that. But you know what I believe? Although I'm like, how would I respond? How would I respond? I know this, God will give me the grace and he'll give it to you too in the hour you need it. Do I need grace to die for the Lord with a knife to my throat? No, I don't need that today. I don't need that grace. But I believe that if the knife ever comes to my throat or imprisonment or anything else, that God will give the grace that is needed in that moment. And so I say, of course I would die for the Lord because I believe in what God would do in my work, in my life, in my salvation. And you should say the same thing. I'm persuaded that what is in your heart and your life, the faith that you have, that you're going to walk it out to the very end, that you're going to be that man or you're going to be that woman that's not going to cave. And listen, don't cave. Pastors are caving. Well, I don't believe the Bible, this part's reliable anymore. And bloggers and, you know, social media people, and they figured out how to do a cool video, and they know how to put together a website. I don't care. That's not going to cause me to give up my salvation. I'm going to follow Jesus Christ to the very end, and I am persuaded you will do that as well. Hold, hold tight to what has come to you. You're, you're, you're not just all of a sudden on the scene. You have a lineage of faith that you are connected with. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and Daniel and Joseph and Paul and Peter. You're part of that. 
Ruth and Esther and Sarah and Rachel and Leah, even those two, right? I mean, the, all of them were connected to that. Why would we abandon that? And what would we abandon it for? Does the world seem to have it so together and they're so liberated and they're, they're so full of life and everything's going so well out there? It doesn't look like it's going well out there to me. Why would I give up life in Christ? Of course, the answer is we won't. We're going to remain steadfast and we're not going to be persuaded by those that come along lately and just want to observe our, our, our part of the race are part of that scarlet thread of redemption, and they want to undo it. It's like, no, I'm not, you're not going to do this. We have, we have 2,000 years of church history. We have the scriptures, and we have thousands of years of the Old Testament. Men and women walked with God. You're not going to tamper with this thing. I know what it says, and I am persuaded, and I believe that it is real. And so Paul is just writing to Timothy. What's going to happen? He's like, don't worry. I'm thanking God, Timothy. I'm thinking, God, in the midst of all this, I get to serve the Lord. And so I know you have this as well. In verse 6, where we will finish up our time, and we've got about 15 minutes or so here, verse 6, I want to talk about reigniting your spiritual gifting. So he sees that it's not going to go well for Paul. Timothy maybe is concerned about, well, maybe it's not going to go well for me. But but Paul comes back in verse 6 and he says, now listen, you're part of this. You have a faith. It was in your grandmother. It's in you. It's in our forefathers. And I want you to reignite your spiritual gifting. I want you to fully uh, deploy the gift that God has given you in your life until the end. And, and so this really, this statement here might very well be the, the main reason for Paul to write to Timothy was keep pressing on. Use the gift that God's given to you. And this gift is mentioned that in the first epistle. So if you turn back two pages or so and go into 1 Timothy chapter 4, maybe just one page, verses 13 through 15, Paul writes and says, Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. Walk out your gifting. And, and do it in such a way that it's what you are all about. Give yourself entirely to them. Don't just give a little bit here, a little effort there, a little, oh yeah, I've got to do a little bit around here. I mean, I want to, you know, I don't want to be too lazy. No, the, the exhortation is give everything you've got to this purpose and to this cause of reading and exhortation and doctrine, using that gift that came to you. And, and so Paul um, clearly understood that Timothy was a called servant of the Lord with a particular gifting. And the word that he uses back in verse 6 of chapter 2, verse 1, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6, he says, stir up. And this word stir up means to fan into full flame or to kindle a dormant fire to revive. Or it could even be keeping the, 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 the blaze alive. In other words, you don't let it go out. Not that it's gone out. And so different translations read differently. Some of them are like, stir it up as if it has maybe dwindled a little bit. Um, others are, keep it alive. 
Um, and so, like one, one author says, a few translators have used an expression such as to keep alive the gift, primarily in order to avoid the impression that Timothy had in some measure departed from his earlier dedication to the gospel. I think, you know, I think it could actually be that the circumstances are just causing him to evaluate. I mean, which of us don't have bad news or hard things that come? There's no big backsliding that's going on, but at any given moment of receiving news, it impacts us in a way, and we've got to, we've got to calibrate ourselves. We've got to establish ourselves with the news that's come. And I think Paul's just saying to Timothy, keep the fire alive, man. Reignite it. Let it burn bright. Full raging flame is the way you should be walking in your gifting, Timothy. You know, every single believer is gifted. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. But the manifestation or the gifts of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. Each one. You and I are each ones, right? We are those that have spiritual gifts. You mean natural abilities and talents? No, don't mean that. You have those too. And some people are really talented in a particular area, right? So we're not talking about a natural talent. We're not talking about a natural uh, ability. We're talking about a spiritual gift. Something that has come to you, not at your physical birth, but at your what? Your spiritual birth. When you were born again, you're brought into the body of Christ and you were given a spiritual gift to use. Now, it's not to say that the spiritual gift can't work alongside or even be fused together and to be just a beautiful uh, outworking of your life. I mean, think of the, you know, the musicians. They have the talent of, of playing an instrument or singing, but not everybody who, who has the ability to, to play a, a, you know, a guitar or a keyboard or you know, drums uh, is necessarily a worship leader. And there's a gifting. There's a place for it. And they, these have a heart to lead us into declaring the scripture that we sing and to be reminded of the character and the nature of God. And so that, there's an example of how you have a natural talent that's met with a, a spiritual gift. Now, what is the gift of worship leading, by the way? That you don't read, oh, and to another, the gift of worship leading. So what is the gift of worship leading? Do you remember Paul in the Old Testament, Saul in the Old Testament, uh, King Saul, and how he was found among the, the prophets and they were worshiping and they were singing? You know, when we worship and we sing, we are not foretelling future events like the book of Revelation or something like that, but we are forthtelling the truth of Scripture. We're, we're communicating who God is and what he does and what we need from the Lord. And haven't each and every one of us experienced the gifting of a worship leader? Um, and the gift of prophecy speaks words of edification and comfort and exhortation. 1 Corinthians 14, I think is around verse 3, says that. That's what prophecy does. It exhorts, it comforts, and it edifies. Haven't you sat in worship and been exhorted about aspects of your faith as you maybe think about the sovereignty of God? Like, oh, Lord, why am I worried? You're exhorted. Or maybe you're comforted that, you know, he's there in every moment. Or, or maybe you're, you're encouraged in a difficulty that you're going through. And this is what, what happens when they lead us. So it's not just their musical talent, but now it's this heart's desire to, to reflect the word of God back into our hearts and we proclaim it and it speaks to us. Worship is for the Lord, but in Colossians it says that we speak psalms and hymns 
of spiritual songs admonishing one another. And so they admonish us in the songs that we sing. We admonish one another as we declare the faithfulness of God. And maybe you see a brother or sister that's just there. You can, you can tell the connection is happening with them and the Lord at that moment. And they're talking about setting their heart and their mind on the Lord. And it just it speaks to you. Like, yeah, I need to set my heart on the Lord as well. And so this is how it works. So you have natural talents, but you have a spiritual gift. Each one of you, of us, have spiritual gifts. And those are the gifts that he is exhorting Timothy to stir up. The question I have is, are you functioning in the body of Christ? Are you a functioning member in the body of Christ? If you're saved, you are a member of the body of Christ. But are you a functioning member? Are you using the gifting that God has called you to do? Nothing is more glorious than getting saved and having our sins taken away and entering into a relationship with the Lord. But as saved people, if you think you can find the contentment and the joy that the Lord has intended for you by not using your spiritual gift, you're wrong. Because God has a plan for you, and that's why he's giving you this spiritual gift. And this should really humble us. It should amaze us to think that when the day I got saved, that God dropped something down into my life that with a spiritual purpose, a solely spiritual purpose, and that I should walk that out, and that should cause me to want to know. Maybe you say, oh, I know my spiritual gift, but you know what? That thing doesn't look like a raging fire. It looks more like a campfire that somebody forgot to stoke through the night. There's some embers in there, but if I don't do something, it's just going to go out. Well, you know what? Embers are good. I'd much rather get a fire going with embers than to have to start it all over. You know what I mean? If there's some embers there, don't be discouraged and say, oh, forget it. I'm just I'm such a loser. No, don't say that. Say, all right, Lord, I'm going to, I'm going to stir this gift up. I'm going to fan it into full flame. Get some, throw some tinder on there. What's tinder in this context? Get in touch with the needs of, of your brothers and sisters around you. What are they going through? Find out where you can serve. Throw that on there. Put, you know, fan it a little bit and watch how it'll just ignite. And then put the, the heavier stuff on and keep building it up and let it turn into this full-blown fire that's raging in your life to use the gifts that God's given to you. So every believer is gifted, but there are hindrances to us using our spiritual gifts, right? So um, I'm going to change the order. I think the number one, from first and second services, the number one reason why people don't use their spiritual gifts, in my opinion, is because we're intimidated. I'm afraid I'm going to mess up. I mean, I mess up a lot of things. And the last thing I want to mess up is I want to mess up some spiritual gift or some, some, as I minister to a person's life, I don't want to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. Listen, when you first start walking in that spiritual gift, it is not going to look like the way it's going to look in 25 years from now. I, if you go back to the first Bible studies I taught, I am so thankful those things are not recorded and my first Bible study is teaching is I, uh, I probably was around 17 years old or something like that. I, I mean, it was bad. I'm not just saying it. It was bad. I didn't, it was, I, it was, it was not heresy. It was all sound, but it was not very digestible. 
It was, it was a, you know, if we use the illustration of a hamburger, it was a hamburger. It just was kind of raw and cold in the middle, you know? Not very appetizing. You eat around the edges, you'll be all right. Just don't, eat, don't digest the whole thing because it might make you sick. And that's kind of the way my teaching was. And, and I've worked on it, and I hopefully in the next couple of years, I'll be a better teacher in the next couple of years than I am right now. So what am I saying is, is that you can't look at yourself who's beginning and compare yourself with somebody who's been serving for a long time and say, I can't do like that. Just start doing what is in front of you. And don't be inti intimidated you, that you're not going to do it as well as you could possibly. You won't, I promise you. But the Lord will use it. And you will grow in your gifting. That skill will be developed in your life. It's kind of like in Numbers chapter 13, when the children of Israel were going into the promised land, remember they sent out 12 spies into the promised land. And they said, go, go take a look and tell us what it's like. So this is right after the Exodus. And so they come back and they're like, man, this land is flowing with milk and honey. There's rivers, there's streams, there's springs, there's mountains, there's vineyards. Look at the size of these grapes. I mean, they're just huge, hugely fruitful land. Great, when do we go? Oh, no, 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 we're not going in there. We're not going in there. Because, you see, there's giants in those land. And ten of them gave a bad report, and they said, we were like grasshoppers in their sight. And if we press in, they're going to squish us like bugs. We can't go in. And the other two, Joshua and Caleb, say, no, 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 no. The bigger they are, the harder they fall. I've always wanted to kill giants for the Lord. Let's go. And, and, and they're like, no. We're not going to do it. And they persuaded them. They had spied out the land. Does anybody know how many days did they spy out the land? Forty days. They looked at the promises of God and they said no. And the Lord said, for every day that you were in the land, you will spend a year wandering in the wilderness. And so they wandered for the next 40 years. And in the next 40 years, everybody that was 18 years and older died. And it was only the younger generation that got to go in, except for... Joshua and Caleb. And when Caleb was being given the land, they were going to give him this nice, easy, fertile land. And he says, you know what? Don't give me that stuff. Give me the mountains because that's where the giants are. I want, to go, I want to go fight the giants still. And that was his heart. But, you know, we, we look at ourselves. We can become like those ten. It's like, no, I can't do it. My giftings are not sufficient. I don't have the ability. I don't have the skill. Step out and begin to be used of the Lord. Find those people around you that will pour into you and help you to walk in that gifting. So that's the number one hindrance, I think, within the church of people not stepping out. I don't want to mess up. Well, I don't want to mess up either, but I guarantee you I have. And if you serve the Lord, you're going you're gonna to miss the mark here and there. But you know what? We've got the word of God to guide us. We have a loving church to help us grow and be instructed and... Um, we have the power of the Holy Spirit upon our lives. It'll be all right. Number two, hindrance, we're too busy. Life just has us. And it's like we can't find the slowdown button. It just, it consumes us. It, it takes up more and more of our life. I, I mean, Rebecca and myself are like, how do you slow down? How do we slow down? I'm not even talking about ministry. I'm just talking about life outside of, of, of ministry. And, and that's the way it's going to be. And, and we, we have to just prioritize things and say, it doesn't matter. I'm going to make this a priority in my life. If God has given me a spiritual gift, 
then I must walk in it and I'm going to use it. So I think we get too busy. We get caught up with the cares of this life. We get caught up with a lot of good things. We're not even talking about sin right now. We're just talking about an overwhelmed schedule that does not allow you to walk in the gifting that you have. If you're that busy, you're too busy. And you're going to have to cut something out. Number three, I think we are unaware of the design of the church. How has God put the church together? How has the Lord decided to work. We can look back in the Old Testament. Oh, he used prophets and he used kings and he used patriarchs. In the New Testament, oh, he used disciples and he used apostles. Well, what, what about today? How does the Lord work today? Oh, he uses pastors and evangelists and, yeah, you guys. What about you? What about us? You see, the Lord wants to, the church to be equipped by Guys like me, so you can go do the work of the ministry. So what it says in Ephesians. First Peter 4:10. Actually, let's see, don't want to go there. Yes, first Peter 4:10 says, as each one has received a gift. So again, see that? Each one has received a gift. That means you. Minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. You're given a gift so you can minister to one another and the grace of God can be poured through your life into somebody. The gift of teaching, the gift of helps, the gift of mercies, the gift of administration, the spiritual gifts. They are all means by which God's grace flows through one life into another. God touches people today through your spiritual gift. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? God wants to use you and the gifting that he's already given you when you came to faith. He wants to touch another person's life through the gifting that you have. Now you are to steward that gift and you're to be a good steward using it, not allowing anything to get in the way. I mean, we know we're going to stand before the Lord and we want to be able to hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Well, you know, I, I, don't, I didn't serve the way I was supposed to, Lord, because that person really hurt my feelings at church. I think he might say something like, yeah, but what does that have to do with me? Did I hurt your feelings? I don't think I hurt your, I know I didn't hurt your feelings. And I asked you to serve me. And you said you didn't serve me because that person made you mad? That doesn't make sense. How is that fair to me? that you would allow somebody else's sin, which I'm going to deal with in just a moment, they're next in line. So how is it that you're going to allow that to be the reason that you were not faithful to me? Well, they went to the same church, or they, they were a Christian. He might show you the scars at that point and say, look what happened to me as I look to minister and I look to serve. So I think we can be unaware of the design of the church and how God wants us to use a spiritual gift Ephesians 2.10 says we are his workmanship or his work of art or his poem or his painting or his sculpture created in Christ Jesus at your new birth. You were created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If you're in Ephesians 2.10 and it says prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, that's your to-do list. God has a to-do list with your name and my name on it. Does anybody like to write to-do lists out? Anybody? Yeah. So a couple of weeks ago, um, I was putting together another to-do list, and I was in that little app that, you know, I, I put them in. 
and I saw like a bunch of stuff and I opened it. I'm like, I have all this stuff to do. And I began to read it. I was like, oh no, I've already done everything on this list. This was from a year and a half ago when I was getting my house ready to sell and helping mom and dad sell their place so we could all move in together. And I'm like, everything on that list is done. It felt good to look at a completed list. Now, the other list, that's another thing. But, you know, it'll be done in three days. It'll be all be done that I need to get done. So the point is, you've got a to-do list. Are you checking the boxes? Well, what is it? You've got to find out from the Lord. You've got to find out from the Lord. I know it's, it's going to be, be directed towards the people that are around you, and it's going to be directed towards the lost. And so we need to walk it out. But he is created you for good works. You see that? You were created for school. You were created for a job. You were created for a hobby. You were created to be financially successful. It doesn't say any of those things. It says you were created for good works that glorify the Lord. And you and I will give an account to the Lord for what we've done with that. The last thing, so too busy, too intimidated, don't understand the design of the church and our giftedness and how he's prepared us to walk in gifts. Our number four is we're waiting for a ministry to just drop into our lap with a title and a job description. Well, I'm just waiting for something to come to me. No, 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 no. Do what's in front of you. Is there a person that's in need? Is there something that somebody's raising their hand and saying, we need help over here? Go do that. Well, I want a job description. I want a full-blown ministry. Yeah, it doesn't work that way in the kingdom of God. Be faithful in the small things, and the Lord will give you more. And so this is the exhortation. So those are some of the hindrances that we face. And I want to close just being real practical. How do you find your spiritual gift? Well, number one, it comes down to what is your desire? Do you desire to know what your spiritual gift is? Do you desire to have an impact upon brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you desire to walk in that? Because 1 Corinthians 12, 31 and 1 Corinthians 14, 1, very similar state, but earnestly desired the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. So desire, earnestly desire. Have a passionate desire for spiritual gifts. Or 1 Corinthians 14, 1, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Again, you see the heart and the passion that the body of Christ, the Corinthians, were to have for the spiritual gifts. What's the desire like? Because if you don't have the desire, you've got to stop and ask, how is it possible that you, as a child of God that's been created for good works, could have no desire to walk in them? That's another conversation. You need to go have that with Jesus like right now. Lord, how can my heart be so cold and so uninterested in your kingdom? You told me to seek it first and I don't. And you needed to get before the Lord and be honest and let him change you and move you. Number two, pray. You have the desire. Now pray and say, Lord, you know, use me in whatever way you would want to. Show me my place within the body of Christ. Pour your gifts out upon me. And number three is meet the needs around you. Um, second, or Titus 2.14 says of Jesus who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people. He wants a special ops force, right? Zealous for good works. works. He wants us to be boiling over 
and a passion. And he, he not only saved us to purify us, he saved us to mobilize us. That's one of the things of the cross. It's one of the works of the cross was to mobilize his people, the church of Jesus Christ. Number four, ask other people where it looks like you're gifted. Say, where do you think I fit within the body of Christ? Now, if somebody asks you that, be honest with them. If they think they're the next, you know, teacher, but keep in mind sometimes they, you know, humble beginnings. Um, but if you feel like the Lord's saying they're not gifted to be a teacher, let them know that. Say, I don't know if this is, you know, your thing, man. Maybe it's another area. But they may ask you, and you might be like, I have no idea because I've never seen you work in ministry. I've never seen you put your hand on the plow of Jesus and just work in his field. So I don't know, just start doing some stuff and let's, I'll pray with you and I'll observe with you. But a lot of times it's just going to be, what is your desire? So let me give you an example as we close. I've used this for years. I love this example because I think it, we can all relate to it. Let's say there was some wiring we needed to do, and we ended up running it down the middle of this aisle in between the seats. And a little kid after service comes running down the aisle. It's not your child. It's some other's child that's running in church. Don't worry about it. So they come running down the aisle, and right when they get to that, they're just kind of not paying attention, and their little sandal gets that cable, and they fall, do you know face plant head first. They fall. They hurt themselves. They get a little rug burn. They're crying. How we respond as individuals is probably a good indication of how God has wired us spiritually. Some of you are going to immediately get up and run over there. And you're going to begin to comfort them. Oh, are you okay, honey? That's all right. It's all right. You got a little boo-boo. Okay, let's, you know, let me blow on it. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, please help the boo-boo feel better. You're going to do everything you can to help them feel better. You're going to say, you know, I know. I know it's hard. When I was a little girl, I fell down and I did the same thing. And, but you're going to be okay. You're going to be all right. Don't worry about it. You've got the gift of mercy. I mean, you're just, your heart is right there in the midst of that pain. But some of you are already playing this situation out in your mind, and you're like, why is there a cable running between the aisle? Who is the administrator around here, and why would they do something like that? They need, I need to find, they clearly need some help organizing, and we probably do, you know, themselves around here. So I've got to figure this out. Who's in charge of facilities around here? I'd like to talk to you. Hey, listen, you know, and you're, you're going to begin to administrate that situation. And then some of you are like, oh, Maybe they don't have enough money to run that thing properly. Maybe the reason why it's like that is because they didn't have money or time. to. I, you know, hey, how much would it cost to run that thing properly and get it off the ground so nobody else trips or falls? You've got the gift of giving. But some of you, you're thinking, it's like, you shouldn't be running in church. <laughs> did, did anybody think that? Is anybody? Yeah, okay, yeah. So you shouldn't have been running in church. This is why I've told you, you shouldn't run in church because you're, 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 you got that gift of prophecy. You're an exhorter. And some of you are like, you know, I was noticing as they rounded the corner and they're running that if they would have been picking up their knees higher as they come through and they got to that, they, they could have made just a simple little jump and, and you want to instruct them on how to run down the aisle so they never trip again. You're a teacher. So what move, I guess the, the simple thing is what moves your heart? What moves your heart to get things, you know, to, to minister to people, to touch people's lives? 
And that very well may be where your spiritual gift is. So ask others what they see in you. And, you know, I said last thing. This is the last thing. See, my notes are up. It's the last thing. It's not in my notes, though, and that could happen again. But uh, people use the same gifting in different ways. The person who has the gift of giving may give that gift of, that gift may come one way. You went up and asked if they needed money? I'm just going to write it anonymously and give it. Well, which is the right way? Well, neither of them are right or wrong, right? So, oh, you know, you, you said to lift up their knees like this? I don't think so. I think, you know, what they need is a new pair of tennis shoes. And so there's, there, we come at things differently. And people will teach differently, and people will show mercy differently, and people are going to show the gift of helps differently and the gift of giftings, and it's going to administrate differently. And let's give each other the grace to serve as the Lord has told us, right? We, 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 you know, don't judge one Bible teacher against another. If they're teaching the Bible, cheer them on. If somebody's showing mercy, celebrate that. If somebody is giving, be thankful to the Lord. And, and we can begin to divide because of the way in which a spiritual gift is being exercised. Fan it into full flame. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you that you let us touch anything that has to do with your kingdom. It certainly is well over all of our pay grade to touch the least of the needs of your kingdom. But Lord, that you allow us and that you gift us and you empower us. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be moved today to be those individuals that are fanning it into full flame. I pray we'd be those that are rekindling maybe that which has been lost for one reason or another. Lord, we ask for you to work and move in our midst in this church, that we would be faithful, that we would be a functioning group of people. No one brother or sister bearing a heavy load because we all are pulling together. Lord, do a work, we pray, in our midst. In the name of Jesus, amen.